Hello, everybody, and welcome to Elmtown, episode 32. Today we're going to be talking about randomness with Chandrika Acharik. You want to say hi, Chandrika? Hello. We'll get back to you in just a second, Chandrika, after we get to the sponsors, who are Day One, a beautiful journaling and life archiving app for Mac and iOS, and Android, coming soon to other platforms. It's a company that I work for, and I love Day One. Daily Drip, which makes keeping up to date on programming skills easy. Daily Drip will save you a ton of time by providing quality lessons and resources for you right off the bat. Some of the topics that they teach include Elixir, Crystal, React Native, Go, HTML, and of course, Elm. 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 <laughs> Learn Elm. faster. Yeah, everyone. I hope everyone cheered it out in their cars. Elm. Yeah, Elm. Okay. Learn faster and more efficiently with Daily Drip and be a better developer. Every weekday, you'll get a short video, about five minutes long or so, delivered to your inbox. Sign up at dailydrip.com using the coupon code ELMTOWN2018. ELMTOWN, all lowercase, dash, 2018. Those are numbers. I don't need to spell them out. So ELMTOWN, all lowercase, one word, dash, 2018. And you'll get a free 14-day trial. And last but not least is Ellie, which is the Elm Live editor. Ellie is fantastic. It's a great way to get your Elm ideas up online right away without installing anything and try things out. It's small. It's meant to be used with just one file, so you're not going to be building a whole app in Ellie, but you are going to be doing little examples or showing people uh, what's going wrong, You know, reproducing the problems you're having and getting help on Slack, etc. You can put those right in Ellie and get help. So go ahead and, uh, and use Ellie. We love it. And then announcements. I have some announcements to make. And if you have announcements too, feel free to message us on Twitter or you can email me, whatever. But the only announcement I have right now is a self-serving announcement because I'm helping to organize the Framework Summit in Park City, Utah on October 2nd through 3rd. The Framework Summit is going to be a place where multiple frameworks and languages will come together like Elm, like React, like Vue, like other front-end frameworks. And in a spirit of... Uh, friendliness, kindness, and uh, learning all together, uh, we will each, well, we, I'm, I won't be speaking, I'll be help, helping to organize, but uh, there will be speakers each talking about the framework that they use, trying to help attendees to uh, get a good feel for the options that are there in the front-end world right now and uh, get a f- good feel about what feels best for them to pick on their next projects or, or what to use for their company. So this is not this is on purpose not a showdown. This is not a confrontational thing. This is a place where uh, people can go and learn about the different options in a friendly and constructive environment. Um, and there is a call for papers that is open. So if you are interested in speaking about Elm, or if you don't, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, but your favorite thing is another one of those frameworks, <laughs> you can still feel free to go and submit a paper at theframeworksummit.com. Feel free to go to frameworksummit.com or if you just want to get tickets. So there's my shameless plug. And we'll wrap up this long front matter by saying big thank you to Fergus Meeklejohn for producing this episode and this podcast. Really appreciate it, Fergus. Let's get back to you, Chandrika. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi there. So I'm relatively new to engineering. Uh, I used to be a nuclear pharmacist, oh. and then I went to boot camp. Can we pause for a second? Because I have no <laughs> idea what a nuclear pharmacist is, and it sounds incredible <laughs> and very dangerous. Uh, sort of and sort of. Yes and no. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> like, uh, is this the kind of pharmacist where you're, like, giving stuff to superheroes because <laughs> every all the stuff you give out, like, turns people into mutants? Is that... <laughs> Not quite Accurate. into mutants, uh, but it does, uh, like, you know, if you go through a, uh, one of those airport scanners, it will light you up. Uh, so, wow. 
So I yeah. mean, you're, so this isn't a joke. Like this is actually you are giving people radioactive medication. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I wasn't administering it, but I was preparing uh, medicines for diagnostic imaging. Okay. Uh, so if you went by anything that detected radiation and you had just gotten injected with this medicine, then you would have set off the meters. Wow. <laughs> so how did you not get radiationed all yourself as well? Did you wear a suit? Hmm. Uh, I wore gloves and I uh, worked behind what we call an L block, uh, which okay. is a leaded glass shield. Um, <laughs> so, uh, like the my torso and everything was uh, shielded, and then as far as my hands, I just wore gloves and so nothing got on my skin. And I wore a badge and rings to measure how much exposure I was getting. Wow. So, yeah, so like uh, we we had syringe shields and uh, vial shields for the actual materials themselves, but I mean you're gonna get exposed to some degree, so Yeesh. it's more a matter of just keeping track of how much exposure you're getting and making sure you don't go over the limit. So is that why you're not employed in that job anymore? <laughs> because you went over the limit and now you're a mutant? Is that? Like, do I you did have- not. I might be mutant. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure what my superpowers are. I think my superpower is actually sleeping. And (laughs) (laughs) that is so useful. It is. Uh, It it turns out that in order to do that job, you have to work overnight a lot uh, because (laughs) (laughs) you have to administer the drugs uh, when people are fasting. So early in the morning. Oh, so that's a bad job to have if your superpower is sleeping. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so it's a logical step to go from nuclear pharmacist to mm-hmm. software engineer. Yes. Uh, but because... just fill me in, just in case I don't get it. Fill, mm-hmm. fill in the rest. I want to know how that transition happened, because that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. So basically, uh, I realized that my superpower was sleep, and that I was not getting as much of it as I wanted to. And I uh, knew some other friends that had gone through other boot camps and really enjoyed working in tech. So uh, I took some online courses, decided that I also happened to like it, and I came out to San Francisco for a boot camp. Awesome. Do you want to name which one specifically so people can think it's cool too, or does it matter which boot camp? Uh, well, I went to Hack Freight, uh over in San Francisco, but uh, boot camps in, in general are just kind of fun that... It's an alternative way to get into the industry. Cool. Yeah. I mean, do you think all boot camps are kind of created equal? Do you, did you have friends who all went to Hackbrite as well? Or, I mean, like, what's, what's the process of kind of, like, picking a good boot camp? Do you know? Do you have uh, any recommendations for people? Yeah. So I think um, things to look at would be curriculum and uh, where do graduates work at after they mm. get out of the program. Good point. So, for instance, I got out and am now working in Elm. Yeah, which is a, <laughs> a pretty comfortable place to be. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who would love to be doing that as well. So that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, how do you find about, out about the curriculum? Do you just call them up and ask them? Uh, they'll usually say something about what stack they use. So Hackbrite stack was uh, Python-based. Okay. Uh, a lot of other boot camps will use Ruby. Um, some use Node. Um so that can also determine, you know, what sorts of uh, companies are you interested in, maybe, because, you know, a lot of startups will use Ruby and um, companies that are into a lot of data science might be uh, more interested in Python knowledge. So Definitely. that can help uh, determine what you want to do. So this, I mean, none of them 
have an Elm stack right now, I'm imagining. So this is all new to you. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. I mean, new insofar as you left boot camp, right. you came to No Red Ink. Is that right? Oh, correct. we probably got forget to mention that. You work at No Red Ink. Yes, I work at No okay. Red Ink. And when did you start working at No Red Ink? A few months after I finished Hackbrite, uh, back in the middle of 2016. Okay. Yeah. So you've been for you've been there for a while, and mm-hmm. you after you left Hackbrite, you came to No Red Ink, and they were like, "Here's this brand new language that you've never heard of, or had yeah. you heard of it?" I I had heard of it actually. So one of my classmates at Hackbrite did a lightning talk on Elm, and that oh, was cool. the first time that any of us had ever heard of it, and we were like, and "When you did, Wait. were you like, what?" Or well, was it, okay. Yeah. So she said that it compiled to JavaScript, and at the time we had just heard of JavaScript, the word. So <laughs> okay, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, that was like I don't even know what's happening. Was <laughs> kind of what it was going through my mind at the time. Imagine um, that sounded pretty esoteric. It's like the first time <laughs> I heard of Closure Script too. I was like, what on earth is? What's crazy? Anyway, continue. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I kind of filed in the back of my mind, like, oh, okay, someone mentioned Elm. Okay, I'm never going to see this ever again. Uh, and then fast forward, I got a job at Nordink, and when I was interviewing, I was like, so I, I know you use Elm. I don't know what Elm is. And they're like, that's fine. So Surprise. Yeah. It's like a video game. You can't forget anything that you actually saw in the game because it's all going to be important to the story later. Is that mm-hmm. right? Okay. <laughs> yes. So pay attention. Okay. So how was the learning process with Elm then? I mean, being being Python-based, Python is... I mean, you can do some functional-like things in Python, but it's certainly not the place where you're going to learn a ton about functional programming from ground zero. Right. So how did that how'd that go for you? It's just a different way of thinking, right? Because like, Python and Ruby are very much about objects that you pass around. And uh, I had also just learned about using the map function for an array in Ruby. And then all of a sudden, everything is a map. Like, you can do list.map. You can do HTML.map. Like, I... <laughs> Right? Yeah. So just thinking about how everything related to each other and the idea that nothing was mutable was just wild. And for people who aren't really familiar with, I mean, I I think I went quite a while programming before I knew even heard the word mutable versus immutable. So let's just, mm-hmm. for, for newcomers, let's just go ahead and describe what the difference between mutability and immutability is. Would you mind doing that? Sure. Yeah. So uh, something immutable is just something that cannot be changed in value. Uh, If you want to create something with a different value, you have to create a whole new uh, thing, Uh, whereas something that's mutable can be changed in place. And so like in Ruby and Python, you can have an array and uh, just like swap out the first item in that array or something. In Elm, you uh, can create a new list, but you can't change the list that you started out with. Excellent. And so the thing that would make mutability dangerous is that in languages, in these object-oriented languages like Python or Ruby, if you, you can you know pass around an array, like you were saying, by reference, which means that the same array is referenced by a bunch of different code, and you can just go ahead and change the contents of that array uh, mm-hmm. in some completely distant part of the code and have the contents change out from under another part of the code that's trying to operate on the data. So that's not great for, for parallel processing, and that's not great for brains, because brains don't really handle that kind of stuff very well. So uh, that's, that's where functional programming says, hey, let's do immutable stuff way more often and save our 
our gray matter a little bit. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's great, Chandrika. That's uh, wonderful. So you were saying that that was a new concept for you when you started working with Elm. Is that right? Yeah. So I had heard the word mutable before, but like it didn't make that much sense to me. I knew that like a string was immutable, but I I didn't know why that mattered <laughs> or yeah. like how to use that. And then if something couldn't be changed, I didn't know how I could do anything with that then. If I could just right. never change yeah, anything that, in the world ever, right? <laughs> well, how yeah. is this a useful program, right? <laughs> yeah. So how did that resolve for you? Because you obviously use, like like the concept now. So mm-hmm. what, what was it that helped you get to the point of, of liking and changing your mind about that? So I think uh, it was more just a matter of so we can start out with one list and then uh, apply a function to all the items in it and come up with a different list, and then we have a new thing that we can work with. But uh, we like so you can still do whatever you want to do. You just uh, know that whatever you're starting with is the actual thing that you know you're starting with, right? Love that. Yes. Yeah. So it's not that you never change it; it's that you can't change it in place. It's that right. you. You don't you don't go take stuff away from other people. It's kind of like an, a yes and idea where you say, oh, I've got this data and here's a change <laughs> upon it, a different version of it. Yeah, yeah. super neat. And I think uh, the hardest part for me to understand at first was how the update function worked on the model. Uh, so like we start out with a model and then the update function will uh, do something and sometimes change some of the fields in the model. But it's actually producing a whole new model, right? It's not right. uh, changing anything in place. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those who are listening and going, that sounds like crazy amounts of work for the computer because you're making new stuff all the time. The answer is yes, that's true. And that's why for uh, a lot of years, you know, while computer science has been developing, et cetera, um, even though immutability was there as an, a good idea, uh, computers weren't really, we weren't really at a state where um, immutability was a practical thing to use, but computers have gotten faster and uh, these libraries that we use and these languages that we use that have immutable data structures, they do some really cool, efficient sharing of space so that you can think as if you're using immutable data structures, but behind the scenes, really, your data structure copies are all sharing information and, and being super optimized so that you have a minimum of wasted space, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. So, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to take over, Chandrika. So yeah, any, no worries. any other concepts that were kind of a, a friction point for you as you came from Python to Elm thinking? So... I think like another thing that happens in Python super easily is if you just want to do something, you can make side effects and not think about it. it like, for instance, uh, if you want to create a random number, you can just call a function and you just get a number and it's super easy. And I was trying to figure out how to create side effects in Elm and everyone kept saying, oh, you know, there's like no runtime errors and uh, you know what your side effects are, but... Like that's uh, that sounds safe until you want to create a side effect. <laughs> so let's describe then, side effects for people who don't know what they are as well. Because I mean, I I never heard the term side effects before mm. I started learning about functional programming too. So even that mm. itself, like, what's a side effect? Yeah. So I think the way that I would describe it is, um, so you can have a function that either uh, returns just a value or a function that uh, produces some sort of effect. So, um, 
like in a browser, if you have something that goes to a different page, then that can be considered an effect. Mm, because it doesn't return any value, right? Is what you're mm-hmm. saying. It just does. It just changes the outside world somehow yeah. or gets something from the outside world. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's like a, I think I've also heard it referred to as an impure function, something mm. that something that doesn't, it's not just a product of inputs. Uh, the output isn't a product of its inputs, but there's some other effect or information that comes in, in the inside of the function magically. And so yeah. that's why you're referring to random, right? Right. Yeah. So if, how would you ever use random? I'm playing the, the person who doesn't understand these concepts for the, mm-hmm. for the sake of learning here. So like, how would you use random if you couldn't use side effects in an Elm? If you can't make a function that just like gets something from nothing, gets a random number from nowhere, how could you mm-hmm. ever get that? Yeah, so uh, that's the problem that I came up with and came up against because I was trying to create a random number and then I couldn't because I needed to start out with something called a seed. And then I had to figure out how to create a seed randomly. <laughs> which like, is, this is what I'm trying to chicken and egg. What's going on? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you can manually create a seed by just giving it a number or something, but then that is still being hard coded. And that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted to have something that was actually like somewhat random, right? Mm, yeah, and maybe we should stick in that the seed is is a number that when you give it to a random generator, the random generator will actually predict like a predictable sequence of mm-hmm. randomish numbers from that seed. So the reason yes. it wouldn't work to just say like, oh, my seed is 21 is because you'd come up with the same set of random numbers every time you called it, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if you, if you start out with a known seed, like seed 21 or something, then... Uh, you and I could both get the same sequence of numbers out of that. That doesn't sound very helpful. doesn't sound very random. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so what do so, we do? So the easiest way to get around this is using system time and feeding that into the seed. Mm, okay. Yeah, because that's but, like a number that is constantly changing and uh, yeah. So that's a funny challenge in itself because how do you get the system time in Elm? That's also a side effect, right? Yes, that is okay. also a, something called a task. <laughs> so what do I do with that? So uh, you can just call time.now, I think is the function, um, and that just produces a task of time. Okay. And then uh, somehow you have to turn that into a random seed. Okay. I'm ready. Tell me how to do it. So remember how I was confused about mapping before? Yeah. Yeah. So we can use our old friend map, but on a task, and oh. convert the time task into a random seed task. Hey, interesting. But then what do I do with a task? Because what I need is a random seed, and I have a task of random seed. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it doesn't fit. Yeah, do do? so the thing that you want at the end is some sort of a command, right? Because commands are the way that we uh, actually produce side effects in Elm. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so I turn the task into a command, which then I give to Elm, and it does the thing. Is that yes? Is that right? And then it does the thing. Okay, and then it tells me when it's done and gives me what I want. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do I go from a task to a command? Uh, that's more task commands. Uh, there's a function called perform that you can call on a task, and then it produces a command. And I I don't have the exact uh, type signature in front of me, but that's okay. Unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> the concepts are what we're going for here. Yeah. Okay, so I so I get a task of mm-hmm. the current time, and then I turn it into a seed, 
and then I have a seed. Oh, and then I have a seed, and then then you, well, you have a task of seed, and then you have to perform that oh, that's seed. Right. Yes. Yeah. Once you have a seed, you can generate something from that seed. So that's more function from the random library. Okay. Yeah. And what are you going to generate with the seed? I mean, like, are you going for a random ID or like what a random number or any any number of those things? Any one of those things? It could be any number of those things. Uh, you could uh, do a Boolean generator, like randomly creating true and false. I think uh, the easiest thing to conceptually think of is just a float between zero and one. So you can uh, just specify your range as between zero and one. I want a float, and based on the seed, give me a number. Okay, that makes sense. That's really interesting. So now I know how to get random numbers, but I so like if I turn it into a random thing, I can only do that once, right? Or like <laughs> if, if I call random with the same seed, I get back the same thing every time. So I I can right. only do one random thing. What do I do? Yeah, so um, random has another function called step, which uh, gives you an output of a tuple. So the first element of that tuple is the actual random number, and then the second item is another seed. And then Mm. if you use that seed, you can keep going. Okay, so this is really like a big chain of random generations, all based on the current time. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to uh, just keep track of that second item all the time and uh, keep passing it along. So this sounds like a huge amount of work compared to just calling random in Python or something. Is that true? Uh, sort of, but sort of not, right? Because like, on the one hand, it might be a few more lines of code, but on the other hand, you actually are focused. You're f- forced to think about what you're doing. So uh, if you think that you're doing something cryptographically secure and you realize, oh, I'm just looking at system time, then that's really right in front of you and obvious. Yeah. Um, And then the other thing is that if you want to keep track of how things look with each random number, you can store that seed in your model and then go back and look at it. Oh, that's cool. So that's actually really good for debugging, right? To be Mm -hmm. able to to take a seed and say, oh, I know what the seed was at this time, and I need to get figure out what's going on. I can use that seed to get back all those same random values. Yeah. So like, if you're, for instance, using uh, random numbers to pick coordinates for something that is moving across your screen, then if it goes off your screen after a certain range, then you can say, oh, well, actually, I want to cut it off. And you can uh, get the range better, or you can say, oh, well, these seeds are not going to work out for whatever reason, maybe. Cool. Very yeah. cool. And uh, so that makes a lot of sense. I just realized that I've been doing this during the podcast. I've been doing this uh, thing where I'm like representing the audience who might not know stuff and asking you questions. I should have made mm-hmm. that clear before I started because <laughs> it's probably <laughs> weird for you, probably weird for the audience too. Uh, I like to do that in the podcast interviews. I like to, where I can kind of take the viewpoint of the audience and try to ask clarifying questions and stuff too that might that might be there so i apologize if that was unclear to everyone (laughs) everyone. Uh, next time i'll try to do better Um, (laughs) so this is really helpful is what was it that helped you learn these things or was there like a mental shift that was required for you in thinking about how random values worked when you came from python going to l so when i was in python i had no concept of seeds at all i just typed in a function and I got a return value. 
and I just moved on with my life. And I knew that somehow there was some sort of magic happening, but I didn't know what that magic was at Welcome all. to computer science. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think it just kind of let, it forced me to dive in deeper uh, more than anything else. So what kind of, I mean, obviously you learned how the libraries themselves work, but what helped mm-hmm. you to actually kind of like fit the new concept in your brain to change the way you were thinking about how random worked in a functional paradigm? So I actually kind of went back to Ruby and Python to see what they did, because when I was creating a random number in Ruby, all I did was type in rand. And it turns out that the Ruby random library also has functions that let you set a seed yourself as well. Hmm. Yeah. So you went back and uncovered that these are all kind of similar concepts. Mm-hmm. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So... uh Ruby decides that if you don't give it a seed, then it will, by default, make up its own seed based on a combination of system time and information from the operating system. But uh, you can do exactly the same thing that you're forced to do in Elm if you want to like, kind of have more control over it. Have those, yeah, those benefits. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I want to touch on something that you mentioned a bit ago. You said... It makes you think more because you may think that you're doing something that's cryptographically secure, but you're really not. Mm-hmm. For those who don't really know what that is, wh- what does that mean that you would be generating a random thing that's cryptographically secure? Isn't it just random? Uh, it's not purely random. Uh, so all these numbers uh, are what we call pseudo-random because they are generated from this seed. And if you know the seed, then you can predict what is going to come out of it. Mm. So maybe I'm going to try to explain this in a good way and augment what you're saying. Like when I'm using something that's cryptographically random, usually I'm going to be uh, encrypting. Thank you. Like <laughs> encrypting some data, right? Get, putting mm-hmm. it putting it into a state where nobody but me can unlock it. Um, mm-hmm. But the the worry is that if I'm not using something, some random number that's cryptographically secure, that means that somebody else could pretty easily uncover that seed, right? And get back to Mm -hmm. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes this is important and sometimes it's just kind of funny. So um, I was looking up how other people use random and there was a case in the late nineties when there was an online poker site and uh, some folks hacking into it realized that their random function was based purely on system time. And based mm-hmm. on when they're looking at their cards, when, when it was all dealt, and what cards were available, they could narrow down what, which seeds they were and then figure out exactly which seed based on the information they had and figure out what, all the, what the order of all the cards in the deck were. Whoa. Right? <laughs> that is some hackery right there. Yeah. But definitely a situation when you wouldn't want to be hacked if you if you were, uh, <laughs> if you're the, the proprietor like of the online poker site, then right? <laughs> it's not great. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so so that's where you'd say like maybe cryptographic number generation isn't only necessary for when you're trying to keep data safe, but maybe mm-hmm. like uh, in maybe a, another example, maybe you could be writing a financial tool and maybe you want to generate transaction IDs and you want to make absolutely sure that none of those can be spoofed. Is that absolutely. the case? When, okay. Yeah. So you wouldn't just want to use system time for that. No, no, never. <laughs> so in that case, if you wanted to generate a cryptographically secure random ID from within Elm, what would you do? So 
it all comes down to how you seed your generators. So if the source of your seed is actually random, then it's okay. okay. So in my case, when I was using system time, my system time is like just a linearly marching number that keeps going up. And that is predictable. Okay. Uh, but you can get numbers from actual random data in the, out in the world. So uh, I've seen uh, stuff where uh, if you Google random, the first site uh, claims to use atmospheric data from like the universe or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think the universe has an API for that. I... <laughs> universe slash data yeah okay yeah so i don't know you could like look at solar flares or something yeah that's really cool okay <laughs> so you're saying would you use an external api to get your random number back like you'd make a call and get it or uh well, yeah well it would have to be something that you trust right because uh it has to be something that is at the end of the day actually random yeah so if you're making an api call to someone who is also using system time then that doesn't Ooh. Fix anything. <laughs> Good point. It might make it a little more complex for someone to hack into, but still mm -hmm. not really truly random. So yeah. it actually, this is a really interesting topic because um, not that I know much about it, but I do know that people go to great lengths to actually get really random numbers. And mm -hmm. I, even down to the hardware level, that can be a difficult thing to do to mm -hmm. actually make a real random number generator. Um, so I'm not going to be able to answer that qu the question I asked you. I was curious to know if you uh, had some magic for me, like if the browser has like maybe something, an API that like looks at the world outside and counts the universe stars and gives you a random number back. <laughs> Sounds like that's not the case. I heard at the service from this girl who's like 12 years old or something who uh, will roll a die and mail you a piece of paper with a number on it. Yes, I heard about that too. That's cool. Yeah, so probably not that, the response that would be an time you need. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's like, oh, generating your user. Please wait two to four weeks. Exactly. Then reload your page. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's funny. Um, so if you are really in need of doing cryptographically secure ID generation, then go do more research than we have. I think is what we're saying. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, okay. there are ways to get more random numbers, like. Uh, I think Cloudflare also uses pictures of lava lamps and turns that into numbers somehow. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's really interesting. <laughs> okay, so if you really are serious about cryptographically secure random numbers, you're going to do your own thing. You're going to write right. your own server. Mm -hmm. You're going to get your own like real random number generators, etc. Yes. Yeah. But but for like, I mean, we're going way far into that. Like for for ninety nine point nine percent of cases, I would imagine. People are just like generating an ID for like mm -hmm. the photo of their cat that they want to put mm -hmm. in yeah. a thing. And non-cryptographically random IDs are probably completely okay for that. Does that seem true? Yeah. Okay. For most cases, I think as long as it's not obviously just, you know, counting up from one through 10 or whatever, as long as it feels random, then that's usually all you need. Cool. Yeah. I love it. Mm -hmm. So any other points about random before we... Before we wrap uh random is cool <laughs> oh what uh, do you have any library recommendations for random or is any particular for elm uh i think the the core library is pretty good random okay is that what you is that what you use when you do it as well random. Mm -hmm. yep, it's right yep there. that's what i use that's right there i'll just write that down i know that there are some other really neat random packages too specifically i think there's one by m gold there's some pretty cool. neat stuff just uh, as a tip 
pretty neat stuff for those who are thinking about it. Mixing in random with fuzz testing. I mean, you mm. can fuzz testing is where you like generate tons of tests off of one like unit test that tests properties of things, and you feed in a bunch of different random data and try to to break your code essentially. And if it does break it, then the system will say like, "Oh, I broke it, and here's the seed that I used to generate the random data to break it." You can run it again and get that broken case. So that's another really interesting use case for random is generating test data and breaking your code. Absolutely. So go f- go forth and break the code. Love and it. I love how fuzz testing will give you the seed so you can actually reproduce it. Yeah. And and how even really cool fuzz testing packages will like narrow down the test so they'll be mm-hmm. like, "Ooh, I broke something. Let's see if I do a bunch of stuff close to that, will that break mm-hmm. it too?" and then they'll give you some breaking values. It's really mm-hmm. neat. Cool stuff. Yeah. All right. Uh let's see. I think we covered most of the points. So cool. do you want to mention uh, how people can get in touch with you if they need help or <laughs> if you're if you're willing to help, offer help? Sure. Uh, I'm on the Twitters. Uh, my handle is uh, CXA555. Uh, okay. So that's on the Twitters. You can get mm-hmm. contact that way. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And do you have any picks or recommendations for the peoples? Yeah. Uh, if you're in the San Francisco area, I recommend Elmbridge to uh, get more familiar with Elm. Uh, we also have a curriculum online if you want to just try it on your own too, uh, if we don't have an event coming up right away. And uh, there's also a meetup uh, called Elm Cafe for, uh, yeah, yeah. It's for uh, non-binary and uh, trans and cis women. Okay. And uh, it's to get more people into Elm. Okay, so the Elm Bridge, I'm looking for the like the site. Oh, there it is. I think I found the curriculum for Elm Bridge. Is there like a site where it has meetup stuff or Yeah, that's on uh Bridge Troll. Bridge Troll. That sounds like <laughs> a scary place to be. Is it's that... part of like an, an umbrella organization for other uh organizations okay. that want to teach their own languages too. So there's like a Rails Bridge and Elixir Bridge and what have you. So that's not a site where people go to, like, troll other people who like bridge (laughs) events. No, no. Actually, uh, all the bridge events have very strict codes of conduct, and you can be, like, you know, friendly, but no trolling or bad behavior. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds very good. Great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Mm -hmm. And I I don't have any myself today. So uh, I want to add like an outro to the podcast because I haven't been very good at getting people to help me market the podcast. I don't know if if that's the right way to say it. But um, as I've listened to other podcasts, they always go like, if you like the podcast, go and share it on – review it on iTunes and share it with your friends and like print it out and, you know, everything. So (laughs) I'm not going to say all those things even though I just did. But what I will say is – Thanks for listening. And if you like the podcast, do what you can to show people that you like it if you want. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at Elmtown Podcast, all one word, all lowercase. And we do have a Patreon account if you want to support with money. But you don't need to do that. But you can. And that's it. Um, any last words, Chandrika, from us? Go try out Elm. You will learn more about how computers work than you ever thought you would. Excellent. Love it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming, Chandrika. I appreciate it. Thank you.